Welcome, everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now, here's the show. Welcome to another special reef keeping edition of the Talking Reef Podcast. Talking Reef is the weekly talk show that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. I'm your host, Rob Weatherly. Every week I bring you a topic on marine fish or reef keeping, and once a month I bring you an interview with a columnist from Reef Keeping Magazine, found at reefkeeping.com. This month I bring you an interview uh, with Jake Adams, who is doing a the featured article uh, and this article is going to be about research being done on coral spawning in the Caribbean. Now, Jake Adams is someone that you might be familiar with. He's done a few shows for us in the past uh, where he was the interviewer. Uh, but Jake is a student at the University of South Carolina where he is working on his major in marine science, uh, specific interest in the physiology of stony coral, uh, also in zooxanthellae and photosynthesis and respiration of Pacillopora demicornis. So let's take a minute and welcome Jake to the show. Hey Jake, welcome to the Talking Reef Podcast. Thanks, Rob. Uh, it's good to be here. Yeah, we've done a, a couple shows for us on the uh, and the interviewing part, so we're finally taking a turn at getting interviewed. Yeah, it's definitely a, a change of plan, but a change of scenery. But uh, I'm glad to uh, get a little change of action. Awesome. Now, the article that you're doing for reef keeping this month um, was around some experimental work you were doing in Puerto Rico, which I know we talked about uh, actually on the Talking Reef podcast before you went down there. Um, can you take a minute and kind of give us a highlight uh, about what that work was about, kind of just at a real high level, what you went down there to do? Okay. Well, um, I and uh, a few other folks well, with similar uh, skills and backgrounds. Uh, we're hired by a professor at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington um, as interns to basically help her do uh, research using uh, larval corals. And uh, some of the things that we're really targeting is perfecting our collection techniques of uh, the coral gametes and also um, you know, trying out different new uh, tech, uh, methods, like uh, aquaristic methods for raising uh, the coral larvae to uh, a point where they would be ready to uh, settle down. And once we produced uh, these larvae and these newly settled corals, we um, did a, a host of uh, experiments to test uh, how the corals uh, react to different changes in um, environmental parameters and also um, especially geared towards looking at some of their sediment preferences, like what kind of substrates um, they prefer to settle on, depending on the species and the habitat. Awesome. So you would go down there and you're collecting a whole bunch of stuff. And I know in the article, uh, so for people that are interested, the article does go into some great detail on, on the type of holding tanks you use, the type of collection methods you used, and, and all of that good stuff. Now, uh, with what type of corals were you concentrating on, on this in this study that you were doing? Well, um, all the corals that we were working on were stony corals. Um, and the two principal species we were uh, interested in were uh, a proper palmata, which is the Ocolon coral, and uh, one of the large uh, mountain star corals, Montastria fabulata. Um, both of those species are very important reef builders uh, where they occur because they form uh, large structures, and um, they're 
generally very abundant on certain reefs. Um, the crawfish palmata was listed as an, uh, a threatened species this summer under the Endangered Species Act because uh, over the last uh, uh, one to two decades, its range has been decimated by about 90 to 99 percent in most places. Um, so those are the principal species we were working with, and then some of the other corals that we were looking at were uh, Montastra uh, cavernosa and Chloria stragosa. Um, one of those is the Atlantic grain coral, and uh, in in contrast to the previous two species which we uh, collected uh, gametes for in the wild, those two we uh, harvested colonies and kept them in the aquarium. Um, and all those are uh, broadcast spawners, so they spawn um, uh, eggs and sperm outside of the coral. Whereas um, the other species which we did a little bit of work with was uh, Fabia fragum, and this is a golf ball coral and that particular coral is not so much uh, an important reef-building species as much as it is a good study organism because it, it's really small. It's, you know, we can have a couple dozen specimens in a tank, and they uh, spawn, you know, generally once a month, uh, two nights a month, whereas the other corals will spawn one to two nights a year. So uh, those are the, the corals we were pretty much interested in. Now let me uh, jump in a little bit. You had mentioned the one type as being a broadcast spawner. Um, and can you take a minute? I know there's a couple different types. Can you highlight the different types and what they mean? All right. Um, broadcast spawners uh, are generally much larger corals. Um, they put all their reproductive effort into one year's worth of release of gametes, and they'll spawn lots and lots and lots of uh, really small eggs um, and, and sperm, which have a really low rate of recruitment uh, overall. But when you're you know, dumping millions and millions of uh, gametes into the water, you can afford that. Um, by contrast, um, there's a lot of large fleshy species uh, like Selenia and Mycetophilia, those are Atlantic species that um, are brooders. And brooders typically um, tend to have somewhat fewer polyps, they're a little bit fleshier, um, they have a smaller size of maturation before they can uh, release their, uh, their progeny. But uh, most importantly, they release a few dozen um, larvae, which are brooded internally. That is, the sperm uh, leaves one colony and actually enters another colony. And so the gamete uh, develops inside the coral. And when the larvae is ready, it will um, exit the coral either through the mouth or through the tentacle tip, just kind of you know, break through. But uh, these larvae are pretty different because they're, they're really large in comparison to broadcast spawners and uh, have a much higher rate of survivorship. That is, um, you know, have a much higher number of those that are uh, competent to settle and to grow uh, thereafter. And the, the primary polyp that forms from brooded larvae is a great deal larger than that for uh, broadcast corals. Okay, so basically there's two different types. So one, the broadcasters, it's one big, huge event that happens uh, once a year. Uh, and then the other ones, it's, it's smaller events that happen you know, periodically throughout the year, monthly, or, or through, you know, more well, often. Well, the thing to know about that is although uh, the broadcast spawners typically will release, you know, one or two nights a year, they're making gametes all year long, or not all year long, but for a good part of the year. So it's not like, you know, it's spawning season and they cruise the eggs right in and there. You know, they're working on it all year long. Okay. Whereas yeah. um, the brooded corals, you know, they um, you know are generally on the month monthly uh, synchronous cycle, where that's how often they produce their eggs. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, um, I, the corals that you work at, were working with in this study. Now, are, are any of these the type of corals that um, a hobbyist would 
you recognize or keep in their tank? Well, um, unfortunately, no, not really. Um, Atlantic stone coals are pr- uh, protected from collection, uh, at least in, in the entire Caribbean, so it's illegal to harvest any stone coals from there. Um, however, there are some specimens that make it into the bases of sponges or gorgonians because you're allowed to chip off a small base or they can come off the side of uh, stony oysters. Um, mm-hmm. And also, they occasionally come in on uh, aquacultured Tampa Bay Florida uh, rocks. But uh, Acapulco palmata is not one of those species you're likely to find. Um, but some of the Montasters and Deporias, yeah. Now, can you, I'm assuming is there's uh, probably South Pacific species that we can um, take the information here and, and, and leverage it against and, and kind of compare it to the stuff that can be found over there. Stuff yeah, that yeah very much familiar. so. Um, yeah, you know, Favia fragum is uh, related to Favia and Pervidians in the Pacific, so it's basically like a moon coral. Uh, the Montastra cavernosa is uh, kind of a fleshy type of linear grain coral, and Montastra uh, Faviolata, although it's in the same genus as Cavernosa, it looks very much like a Cyphastria species, so it's kind of like a small polygonine species. Mm-hmm. Um, Acropora palmata can just be thought of as kind of a branching plate, uh, plating table acro. Gotcha. So, yeah. so there's a lot, I mean, even though we're studying um, the stuff here in the Caribbean, uh, a lot of this information can be can be leveraged and, and used with a lot of other stuff. Now, Right. Um, since you know, there's only so many coral techniques, although the details aren't exactly the same, being aware of how corals respond to their environment and how they get their cues for when to spawn is very much um, correlated with, you know, how Pacific corals uh, do their thing. Cool, cool. Now, kind of the, the main thing that we're talking about here is understanding sexual coral reproduction. The coral reproduction that most people are familiar with in the hobby is... Um, reproduction by fragmentation you know we're going to break a piece off and we're going to grow a new colony with it and you know some of the the downsides with that is there's you're not you know diversifying the gene pool at all basically Uh, so what you're trying to understand here is sexual coral reproduction now i think a lot of people will probably understand the importance of this from a scientific standpoint uh, but can you take a minute and talk about why this is important to a hobbyist and why we can't just we shouldn't just continue doing you know regular cloning or fragging for the rest of our lives? Well, you know we didn't get you know the diversity of dogs and cows and different farm animals by you know reproducing them asexually, even though you can't. But you know that is to say, all those uh, strains and races have been uh, selectively bred. And for durability or for growth or for hardiness. And there's a potential for us to do all of that with corals um, in aquariums. Um, it's you know, possible that we might be able to uh, you know, produce corals in the future that are more resistant to, to heat stress. And you know, corals such as those, although you know, a very long way off, those could be used to reseed the reef. Um, you know, and in the same way that uh, tulips and orchids are hybridized to produce new forms and new colors, and there's also the possibility that in the future, aquas may be able to do this as well. Um, but the more immediate point is, um, especially with the brooded corals, there are a lot of brooded corals that are spawned in captivity. Um, these include uh, Tubastria, the sun coral, um, Pasolopera, the cornus, a very common one. Both of these frequently release um, you know, brooded larvae, which occur in aquariums, but the aquas is not necessarily providing the cues um, intentionally. And so mm-hmm. although it occurs, it'd be nice to 
kind of you know synchronize with the the core of needs and be able to collect these larvae on a control it a little bit more. Yeah, you know, a lot of people do have have uh, corals that also brood larvae that they just don't know about. Corals will pop out of the rock and they, you know, assume that because they haven't put a particular coral there and come the other side of test it, they wouldn't spawn. And uh, the coral that comes to mind is, is a lot, oftentimes I'll see some euphilia growing off the side of a tank or off a PVC or off an egg crate in uh, dealers' tanks who bring in a lot of corals because I guess occasionally they'll have a coral that's ready to, to release some planula and when it comes in, it, you know, that's them out. So, um, and there is the immediate possibility of being able to raise brooded corals, um, especially scalenia and some of these other rare, large, fleshy corals, which um, we currently don't have available to us. Um, and these are highly coveted and rare species um, that are not available in the hobby. So basically what we're, we're getting at here is to allow hobbyists to... Uh, you know, work a little bit more with the corals to diversify the types of corals that we have, um, you know, and, and kind of change it up a little bit more. Um, you know, like you mentioned, some crossbreeding, maybe working with bringing out different characteristics of corals, uh, and you know, like we do with uh, other animals. Now, um, from to talk a little bit more about the scientific point of view, um, or I guess at a higher level, um, what are the uh, ecological What's the ecological importance of, of understanding, uh, you know, sexual coral reproduction? Well, the main thing is is that these days, you know, scientists for the uh, last couple of decades have really focused on what they can see, and that's the large um, reproducing corals and, and juveniles and everything in between. But the, the life cycle of the coral, which is really important for, you know, producing new recruits and, and building new reefs, is uh, what's really missing from the equation of what we are understanding about reefs these days. And so uh, these days, a lot of researchers are being more focused at uh, studying this part of the life cycle, which is really important in helping reefs rebuild because, um, you know, there's a, the rate of mortality these days has pretty much increased um, to a, a great deal. But even worse than that is we're seeing a lot fewer recruits to, that we're starting making up for these lost colonies. And so it's really important to, to understand what's affecting um, this part of the life cycle. Awesome. Now, um, with the work that you did when you went down there, um, was there any immediate outcome of the work uh, that you you know can, are prepared to talk about at this point? I know a lot of it can take some time, but um, coming out of what you just completed, is there anything that you can say that we've learned right as of this point? Um, well, for starters, like I was telling you earlier, a lot of uh, sampling was done, and a lot of data was taken, but I, it, a lot of it has not been analyzed and compiled yet. Um, but one of the experiments that we did do and uh, got some results for was just a simple incubation of the coral larvae of a couple species to see um, their uh, thermal tolerance. And we did baths at 28, 30, 32, and 34. 34 is uh, degrees Celsius, that is, is almost uh, 95 degrees so we knew that the coral was not going to do well. We just didn't know how how strongly. Excuse me. And uh, so the corals that were incubated in 34 degrees water pretty much didn't make it till the next day. But in 32 degrees, they did develop almost two term, but they died out before they um, metamorphosed into tangula. Um, and then the 30 degree water was a little bit retarded in development, but the 28 degree water seemed to be you know pretty uh, pretty good for uh, just for incubation of the larvae themselves. Now, um, those were kind of smaller aquariums, and there is um, 
I guess, a captive uh, container effect. And so we don't know exactly, you know, for sure if those limits are the environmental uh, tolerance limits, but uh, we just need to do a little bit more work and uh, figure, uh, research that. Well, cool. now with as you mentioned, um, one of the primary things here was collecting uh, data, which, uh, as I understand it, the data collection process is still going on, even though you uh, have left the site. Um, but going forward, uh, what are some of the things that you're expecting to learn uh, once you get all the data collected and get some of the, and get it all processed? Uh, are there any predictions that are being made or things that you're kind of expecting to see out of this? Well, okay, so one of our largest experiments that we did was um, we put out a lot of different uh, lot of blocks out in the field under different conditions to look at how um, the ecology, the micro community, the substrate community would uh, grow in different parts of those blocks. And we made very careful um, notes of orientation of the blocks, you know, top, down, left, and, you know, all the sides. And uh, our big experiment basically was using uh, a couple of different types of larvae and settling them on these blocks that had been conditioned under these different uh, parameters and uh, to look at how their settlement preferences changed. Um, so one thing we did as soon as we got the blocks back from the field after we incubated them, um, we counted all the, the larvae that were on different sides of these rocks, of these blocks. One thing that was apparent immediately is that the bottom side of these blocks at this particular site were the preferred um, orientation of settlement, um, but we don't know exactly why right at this moment. So what, the, what we're looking at is um, we took pictures of the, the block sides that we were interested in, and uh, Chris Jury is working as a grad student for the professor who hired all of us, and his, uh, some of his work, I guess, that he's going to be doing uh, this semester and the coming semester is analyzing those images and seeing if there's some present presences of the corals based on what's already growing on the block. So that's uh, something that we're looking forward to uh, determining. Good, and I think that's some important stuff. So basically what you're talking about here is um, you uh, you prepared some blocks and you're trying to determine um, what types of substrates certain coral larvae will attach to and what they will and what they won't. Now when you said um, the bottom part was seemed to be from what you saw uh, possibly as being preferred. Now, when you say bottom, do you mean like the bottom is in the underside? Yeah, it's the bottom of the underside. You can you know, they, see them on a block. Were they suspended on something, or I mean, I would think yeah, those I would. The blocks, I'm sorry, I should have elaborated. The blocks were after we they were on their particular uh, treatment condition. Um, they were all skewered into this particular cage that had a, a very fine filter mesh over it. So this, you know, these blocks are actually kind of suspended. Um, okay. In the water column where all the corals were uh, in, in Gotcha. Okay, I'm thinking. Okay, isn't the substrate? I mean, isn't it sitting? Out? Okay, so uh, all right. Um, all right. Well, I that that covers a lot of it. Now, you know, going forward, uh, for you personally, I guess this is kind of a personal question for you. Um, aside from this project, is there any other uh, future work that you're planning on doing that you kind of wanted to throw out there for any for everybody? Um, well, I guess as far as like um, scientifically concerned, I'm a little bit more interested in uh, uh, Zuzanthelli effects. Um, Chris Jury, like I said, is going to be following up on this work. Right, right. And, um, it's going to be it's going to be a little bit of a while before I can uh, maybe look at the association of certain Zuzanthelli types with um, early juvenile corals. Um, but yeah, that's just something that's out there. But um, 
Yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, Jake, I wanted to thank you again for, for taking the time coming on the show and talking to us about this article. Uh, for everybody that's interested, uh, uh, can go over to the reefkeeping.com site. It's the future, featured article and get more information about this. There's a lot of a lot more information. Uh, you did a good job kind of outlining everything that was done. So, uh, again, thank you for taking the time to uh, come on the show and uh, talk about this with us. And hopefully we'll get to talk to one of you guys once you get some more of the data back. Uh, yeah, you know, like I said, I'll stay on top of it. But uh, thanks for having me, Rob. It's a pleasure. Again, I wanted to thank Jake for taking the time to come on the show and do the Reef Keeping Edition podcast with us this month. Uh, at this point, I'd like to run through and give some highlights from this month's edition of Reef Keeping Magazine. So this month's featured articles, as uh, we just heard from Jake, the featured article is on coral spawning research that was done in Puerto Rico. Some of the other features this month are the Frag of the Month, which is on propagating the Euphilia species corals, also known as a frog spawn. It's a real good article for anybody interested in, in fragging Euphilias or frog spawns. Uh, and also check out uh, this month's Tank of the Month that's done on Reefkeeping Magazine. As always, some very beautiful reef tanks. And this month's columns include Invertebrate Corner. Uh, this, this month is, uh, do you really know what you're dealing with? Uh, getting to know the real eye obsoletas. Now, many people probably are familiar with the obsoleta type of snails. These are those snails that you'll see on like eBay for a hundred for a dollar or something like that. Uh, real good article. Uh, everybody should go through and take some time to, to, to read this, uh, read this one. Some of the other articles, uh, Reef Alchemy, uh, Randy Holmes Farley, Problems with Dinoflagellates and pH. Coral Reef Ecology, uh, Chris Jury's back with Part 3, The Nutrient Dynamics of the Coral Reefs. Uh, so that's a, a good one for everybody to check out. Uh, there's a medicine in the reef article that's uh, pretty interesting for anybody that's been following all of this stuff that's been coming out of the coral reefs from a medical aspect, and it's uh, anti-cancer drugs from the coral reefs, Prospects and Promises. Uh, and of course, Reefkeeping's Top 10 list. This month, Reefkeeping's Top 10 brings you top 10 comments from visitors upon seeing your reef system. So again, make sure everybody, you take some time, head over reefkeeping.com. Check out all the great articles and columns that they've got this month. Uh, that's going to wrap up the Talking Reef podcast or the Reefkeeping edition of the Talking Reef podcast for this month. I will talk to you all next month. Thanks a lot. <laughs>